Well, let me, let me start this morning by encouraging you. Here's, an, here's another one of these uh, cards that we give back from our guests, right? This one says, what's the first thing I noticed? The friendly front greeters were so genuine. All right, and this is what I like best, the overall friendly, genuine people. So I chewed on you guys about not being friendly, and you're like over the top now. It's outstanding. But thank, thanks for welcoming people here in the name of Christ, with the love of Christ, for not making it just be about you and your family, but coming with that mindset and that perspective that honors Christ and represents Him well. And our guests are looking for that. They're, they're hungry for that. They, they are here for that. So especially as we approach Christmas... Lots of people start, their hearts turn towards Christ at Christmas, and we, we want to represent that really well here. You know, when you think about Christmas, there's a spectrum of how people think about Christmas. On one end of the spectrum, you've got the Grinch, right? People dread it, people hate it. You move towards the other end of the spectrum, and you have expectant children, um, eager for the day. You move far, far beyond expectant children, way, way down at the celebratory end of the scale, and you find Daniel Creswell. Okay. I don't have a picture of Daniel Creswell, but I have a picture of his kindred spirit at Christmas. Um, <laughs> the best way to spread Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear. You know, in the... In, in, in the office, in Advent, we, we wear helmets when we walk past Daniel's office, lest Christmas shrapnel and Creswellian joy should wound us as we walk by his office. Um, Dan, Daniel loves Christmas all year round. He has two, not one, but two lit Christmas trees in his office all year round. They're small, but they're lit, and they are in his office. Um, you know, it's not just the music that Daniel loves. It's not that he's from Tennessee and that whole tender Tennessee Christmas thing. Um, what I love about how Daniel and why Daniel loves Christmas is because he gets Christmas. He understands that Christmas means that the Son of God came to earth to rescue us from a lifelong slavery. Um, and so today what we're going to do in Hebrews 2 is we're going to find three reasons you should celebrate Christmas like Daniel Creswell, right? With great passion and much joy. So open your Bibles, not to Luke 1 or 2 or Matthew or John, but to Hebrews chapter 2, and we'll worship Christ there together. So Find your way there. I'm going to pray for us as you do. Lord, be exalted today. Lord Jesus, be exalted today as worthy of passionate, wholehearted, um, whole life worship. Um, Father, by your spirit and your word, make clear to us the wonder of the season we are celebrating. Uh, the awe the scope of the love and the sacrifice. May it all, may it all affect us deeply and move us towards you and, and towards, uh, towards others for Christ's sake and in his name we pray. 
Amen. Well, today, today we are going to leave those traditional Christmas texts in the Gospels and look at what one writer considers to be the best explanation of the incarnation of Jesus becoming a man of Christmas and what Christmas accomplished in the entire New Testament. And it is found in Hebrews 2, starting in verse 14. Now, it's interesting The book of Hebrews has gone anonymous on us over the years. We don't know who wrote it, and I think that's for two reasons. One is to give scholars something safe to do in their free time. I think most of them spend their time trying to figure out who wrote Hebrews, right? They all have their theories. Uh, But the other is that the book is about the absolute supremacy of Jesus Christ, and it's so fitting that nobody knows who wrote that book because it's not about who wrote it. It's about the one it's written about. It's about the supremacy of Jesus above all things. And as we drop into these early chapters of Hebrews, this anonymous admirer of Jesus is midstream in proving Jesus' supremacy, especially over the angels. He's establishing Jesus as supreme, even over these amazing beings, and explaining how Jesus' humility is part of his exaltedness. Um, So, starting in verse 14 of chapter 2, we find him writing, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And... What I'd like to draw out of this short passage today are are three compelling reasons why we should rejoice at Christmas with great hope and great joy. Um, The first of those reasons is in the very first uh, few verses. Um, The very Son of God has become like us in every respect. The Son of God has become a man. And verse 14, right away, says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things. He put on flesh, took on flesh and blood too. And then in verse 17, it says it again. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Um, Son of God became a man, became a baby on that first Christmas. And when the writer of Hebrews says that he had to be made like his brothers, it implies there was a time when he was not like his brothers. Okay? And again, if we go back to our understanding of the Trinity, the God we worship, um, three in one, and you look again at our, our church's belief, statement of belief that we have, we say, we believe that the Godhead exists eternally. In three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and these three are one God. 
worthy of precisely the same confidence, obedience, and worship. So Father, Son, and Spirit have always existed eternally. Jesus did not become the Son at His incarnation, but He always existed as the Son. But what happened at His incarnation is that He took on flesh. See, there was a time before He was born a babe on that first Christmas morn that Jesus sat at the right hand of the Father in all the glory you can imagine that might be due the Son of God. And Jesus is thinking and reflecting on that and the prayer he, pl- he prays the night before he goes to the cross. In John 17, Jesus prays this. He says, Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Okay. So Jesus has surrendered that glory in some way by taking on human flesh. Um, He himself likewise partook of flesh and blood. He laid aside his glory. He became a baby. He took on human flesh. About 20 years ago, there was a singer. um, Her name was Joan Osborne. She wrote a song that became remarkably popular Uh, some of you are old enough to remember it, is called One of Us. And part of it, the lyric was, what if God were one of us? Just a slob like one of us. And while that's not the tightest theological description of the incarnation, probably, um, it does capture the perspective, the lowliness of Jesus becoming one of us. See, the perspective of his taking on flesh and blood and becoming a man like us is not that we are the, that mankind, humankind are the exalted pinnacle of creation. That's not the point. The point is how much lower we are than the creator and how far down Jesus had to stoop before he became one of us. See, right out near my house, Rob Craig informed me of this. I live within just a couple of miles of the highest point in Franklin County, 562 feet above sea level. Awesome, huh? (laughs) Now, when I lived in in Dallas, Texas, we used to vacation. Uh, We used to backpack in New Mexico. We would drive all the way over to New Mexico. Texas is a wide, long place. We would drive all the way over there, and we would hike hike 13,000-foot peaks in New Mexico. And from that vantage point, the highest point in Franklin County really doesn't look that high, okay? Not that impressive. That's the perspective that's going on here. It's not the exalted place of man in creation, but it's the low place of man before the Creator. How how far down Jesus had to stoop to become one of us. That's why Paul, when he writes in Philippians 2 about this, he says... Jesus made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. And some of your Bibles happily render that the form of a slave. Being born in the likeness of men. Became nothing. Became a slave. Philip Yancey says, uh, how did Christmas Day feel to the Son of God? Imagine for a moment becoming a baby again, 
giving up language and muscle coordination and the ability to eat solid food and control your bladder. God as a fetus, he says. Or imagine yourself, he says, becoming a sea slug. He said, that's probably a closer analogy. On that day in Bethlehem, the maker of all that is took form as a helpless, dependent newborn. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook in the same things. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He put on flesh and was made like us in every respect. It's really important to wrap your mind around this. Think what it would have been like if you'd been back in the first century and had encountered the Son of God in the flesh. Someone asks you, so what'd you do today? Went over to Mary and Joseph's house to babysit God. He's such a good baby, right? (laughs) Yeah, you bet. Um, So you run into Mary. She looks really tired. You say, wow, what, you, you feeling okay? She says, oh, God kept me up all night. I just couldn't get him back to sleep. <laughs> you're a teenager. You're headed out the door. Your parents want to know where you're going. And you say, I'm going to go shoot some hoops with God. Somebody says, what'd you do today? You say, well, I picked up God, and we went and grabbed a cup of coffee. See, what ought to stretch our incredulity about that is not the presence of hoops and coffee in the first century, but the presence of God in the flesh. He put on flesh. He became like us in every respect. He was not Superman. He probably probably skinned his knees and caught the colds that were going around. He was not immune. He was like us in every respect. Even in our suffering, verse 18 in in our passage today says, because Jesus himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being Tempted. Jesus suffered when he was tempted too. We think of his humiliation and the opposition he endured, his rejection and ridicule and betrayal, the loneliness and separation that led up to and included the cross. All of these are part of his suffering. John Calvin says, It becomes us, therefore, boldly to profess the agony of Christ. If we are not ashamed of the cross. And certainly had not his soul shared in the punishment. He would have been a redeemer of bodies only. To teach us that not only was the body of Christ given up as the price of redemption. But there was a greater and more excellent price. That he bore in his soul the tortures of condemned and ruined men. See we used to. uh, We have this. Beautiful Maundy Thursday service. We've had it for decades now. Almost the life of our church, I think we've done that. And the meditation used to be, uh, long ago, broken into two parts. We would meditate on the sufferings Christ bore in his body. 
And then we would meditate on the, the sufferings he bore in his soul. And, and all theologians think that the latter were the greater. That there was a suffering greater than the physical pain of being nailed to a tree that Jesus bore when he was separated from the Father because of our sin. And that's remarkable when you think that his physical suffering was virtually limitless because it was a suffering even unto death. Our passage makes that clear. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. See, we celebrate Christmas with great passion and joy because Jesus loved us such that He was willing to become one of us, and not just the pretty parts, the suffering too, even unto death on the cross. The writer of Hebrews tells us that this baby was born so that He could die. It was by becoming a man that he was able to accomplish what is the second reason I want to show us that we so rejoice at Christmas. See, he put on flesh and became one of us in order to rescue us from a lifelong slavery to the fear of death. Again, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now some of you might be thinking, um, I'm not sure that I really ever was enslaved to fear of death. Um, I, I hardly think about death at all. And I would say, exactly. Why wouldn't you think about something that is 100%, last time I checked, 100% likely to happen to you? And it changes everything. Death will mess up all of your plans. Okay? Why wouldn't you think about it Something that's absolutely certain to happen and so life-changing, life-ending. Unless fear of death really is shaping us more than we think. Um, there's a guy named Caleb Wild. He's a sixth-generation funeral home director. And he writes a blog called Confessions of a Funeral Home Director. His blog gets 80,000 visits a month. And his Facebook page has up to 500,000 hits in a week. Confessions of a funeral director. He says things like this. He says, death gives you an important perspective on life. It's a tragedy not to think about death, but Americans don't like to talk about the inevitable. He says, our screens are filled with zombies, and yet speaking frankly about death is seen as morbid or unhealthy. See, Jesus knew that it was our fear of death that pushed us away from even being able to think about it, to talk about it. John Piper says that the fear of death acts like a cruise control in our life. He says this fear has gone underground and enslaves from the subconscious. It's like your car's cruise control. 
The cruise control of your soul gets set at 50, the 55 mile an hour of contentment and peace of mind. And if your soul begins to slow down and become pensive and thoughtful and reflective about God and the things of eternity and really the reality of dying, the cruise control kicks in and quickly pushes the speed back up to where you don't think about all that. That's the power of the fear of death functioning subconsciously like a slave master over what you can feel and think. Now, I suppose this fear, the fear of death, is rooted at some level in the fear of the unknown because, after all, when you die, it's the first time for everyone, right? We, it's a new experience, and we don't know really what it's like. But I cannot help but think that in the back of our minds, for most of us, even in our day and age, there's a nagging fear of death because we fear what may lie behind it, some kind of judgment before some kind of God. Hebrews brings clarity to all this when it says a few chapters later, it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Chapter 10, a fearful expectation of judgment remains and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. See, death can be, and maybe it should be, a terrifying thing. The passage in Hebrews calls this fear a lifelong slavery. And Jesus became one of us that first Christmas, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus took on flesh so that by his death he could set us free from a lifelong slavery to the fear of death. Verse 18, the last verse we talk about this morning alludes to that. It says, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus is able, when we are tempted to fear death, he helps us because he himself has been tempted in his own suffering that led to death. Hebrews 4 describes Jesus this way. It says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. I have a friend. Um, he's, he's barely 40, okay? And yet, um, he has just recently completed mapping out his entire funeral and all matters related to it, okay? Um, right down to what he's going to wear. Uh, he's barely 40, and he's in great health. So why would he do that? Um, why script it all out? Has he been watching too many episodes of Night of the Living Dead? Possibly. But really, I, I think it's because he's lost his fear of death, okay? He's not afraid to think about it. He's not afraid to acknowledge it. Um, he can face death with his hope and joy intact. I understand that he's going to be wearing a Hawaiian shirt, okay, which is probably one of the great 
declarations of joy from a clothing standpoint, right? Um, he can face death because Jesus has freed him from a lifelong slavery to the fear of death that forbids talking or even thinking about it. I, I love what Pastor Bill Hybels is quoted often as saying. He says, Christianity is the greatest way to live and the only way to die. See, we die different. We die with our hope on. We celebrate Christmas with such great passion and Creswellian joy because the baby born on Christmas has set us free from a lifelong slavery to the fear of death. No more. Not for us. Not for those who know Jesus and believe in Him. Christmas in Jesus brings us hope that transcends death. How does that happen? That takes us to the third reason to rejoice at the birth of Christ. He became for us a merciful and faithful high priest. Verse 17 says it beautifully. Therefore, it says, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This is hard to grasp for us a little bit because we're so far removed from the realm of high priests and the sacrifice they offered. Um, So a little Old Testament review may be in order and... uh, Stephen Cole summarizes the main idea for us well. He says, the Jews knew that they could not approach God directly. They had to come to Him through the priest who would offer their sacrifices on their behalf. He represented them in everything pertaining to God. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would represent the entire nation by entering the Holy of Holies and presenting the blood on the mercy seat. If anyone else dared to enter that sacred place, or even if the priest, high priest went in there on any other occasion, it meant instant death, according to Leviticus 16. Thus, the role of the high priest was essential so that the nation could be cleansed from its sin each year and approach a holy God. The high priest's role was essential for broken, errant, stubborn, selfish, sinful people like us to approach a radically holy God. They simply could not do it on their own. Their records and ours were simply all too marred. We've made too many poor choices, too many mistakes, too many sins. So Jesus became a man to become our high priest. Which kind of begs the question, did he have to become a man to do that? Couldn't he have done that from the glory of his pre-incarnate state by the with the Father and the Spirit, as He was for all eternity past. Um, See, He had to become a man because He's not only the high priest, He's also the offering. Hebrews talks about this a lot. In Hebrews 9, it says, As it is, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. He's the priest and sacrifice. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make 
propitiation for the sins of the people. That's what he does as a, as a high priest. He makes a sacrifice that makes propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, in all likelihood, that's a word that you didn't hear at Food Lion yesterday. Okay? It's not a common word, um, but it's a rich, rich one. I like how John Piper puts the cookies on the bottom shelf for me here. He says, that big word, propitiation, simply means Christ takes away God's anger at us for our sins. When Christ dies, he says he's, he's perfectly innocent. His death is to bear the guilt and punishment of our sins, not his own. And when our punishment falls on him, it's taken away from us. That's what propitiation means. God's justice is satisfied. He loved us enough to put his own son forward to absorb the punishment we deserve so that we could, he could demonstrate that he is just and faithful in dealing with sin and merciful in dealing with sinners. He says this is the great gospel. This is our great salvation. Christ dying in our place and propitiating God, removing his righteous anger from us. So in him there is now no condemnation. And if there's no condemnation for us, this is how the devil is rendered powerless, as some of your Bibles would say. He has nothing to use against us anymore because Jesus has borne the wrath of God. Have you ever wondered what that would be like to fully bear the wrath of God for the sins of the world? I can't, I can't begin to imagine what that must have been like. When Paul writes about it, he uses terrifying language. He says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Those are sobering words. No one that I have heard or read has described in such a way that's been so terribly helpful for me to grasp what it means that Jesus bore the wrath of God for me, as has R.C. Sproul. Um, he writes about the moment on the cross when Jesus made propitiation for our sins and he cried out in Matthew chapter 27, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that it is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay. And he says the key to understanding the cry of Jesus from the cross is found in Paul's letter to the Galatians, where he says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He says to be cursed is to be removed from the presence of God, to be set outside the camp, to be cut off from his benefits. On the cross, he says, Jesus was cursed. That is, he represented the Jewish nation of covenant breakers who were exposed to the curse and took the full measure of the curse on himself as the Lamb of God, as their sin bearer. 
He was then cut off from the presence of God. On the cross, Jesus entered into the experience of forsakenness on our behalf. God the Father turned His back on Jesus and cut Him off from all blessing, from all keeping, from all grace, from all peace. He says God is too holy to even look at iniquity. God the Father turned His back on the Son, cursing Him to the pit of hell while He hung on the cross. Here was the Son's descent into hell. Here the fury of God raged against him. It was as if there was a cry from heaven, as if Jesus heard the words, God damn you. Because that's what it meant to be cursed. His scream was the scream of the damned for us. See, at that first Christmas, Jesus became one of us to free us from the lifelong slavery to the fear of death by becoming our high priest and offering himself as the sacrifice, taking upon himself the damning wrath of God that was to have been mine and it was to have been yours. It would have been ours. And that is why we should all celebrate Christmas, the birth of our high priest Jesus, with a passion and a joy that makes Daniel Creswell hang his head in shame. We should celebrate like slaves set free, because that is what we are. By the grace and mercy of Christmas, of Jesus. Would you bow with me in prayer, please?